Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ubi Est Mia, a show about Chicago by former Chicagoans. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode is with Dan Bush, a former Chicagoan, current Iowan, I-O-W-A-N, someone who lives in Iowa. Dan lives in Iowa. Dan is one of the owners of Analog. Analog is a fantastic bar in Iowa. And since uh, you're probably living in Chicago, good luck getting to Iowa. It's not that far. It's like three hours away. But go to Analog. It's a bar you would like. I thought we were just going to talk about fun things like video games and stand-up comedy. But instead, we talked about a lot of other really deep things. And I'm really glad that Dan was willing to open up about this stuff. So, by the way, this is not like an episode that's going to make you cry or anything. I'm just putting the preface in there that we talk about more than video games. Without further ado, here's Dan Bush. You've been in Iowa a long time now. Yeah, I uh, I moved back right after college. Did you so did you think you were going to do that? No, absolutely not. No, I. Uh, in fact, I told myself that I was never moving back. You know, I was one of those. You know, who, why would you move back to Iowa? You know, so. Uh, but I think it was, it was really one of those things where I. Um, uh, I didn't have a lot of options after college. I think I was just kind of. You know, I, th- I thought I was going to go to law school, and then I bagged that, and then I was just kind of floating for a while. And then you found me an internship, so that bought me uh, two to three months of mess around time. And then, uh, then I was like, oh, no, I really have to figure it out. And also, I, uh, uh, Megan, who is my wife now, we decided to get engaged the summer after we graduated. She went to Iowa. So um, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, we eventually want to have kids. Do we really want to raise them in the city? Or do we want to, you know, raise them in a place a little bit more comfortable? So, I, I like that you're you were what twenty two at the time. Yeah, that at twenty two you're like, oh, I must have a career at this point. I cannot possibly just get by on a really crappy job. Well, the problem is, like, I had no prospects. You know, like I I remember uh, interviewing for what I was told was a sports marketing job, and then when I went for my first day on the job, it was selling door to door cable. And I thought, and then, and then I was really looking at jobs on Craigslist and it was, you know, dishwashing jobs with five years experience. I realized that I didn't have experience in anything, you know? So uh, I just thought, well, I guess I'm moving home. And this was in 2006. That was in 2006, right. So you've been in Iowa for the last 10 years. Yep. Are you enjoying Iowa? I love it here. Well, it's a little different now because when you first moved back, you had a fiance and now you have a whole family. Yeah, so I have two daughters. I have Hannah, who is six, and Lucy, who is five. Um, I don't think I've ever actually met your daughters, but since we're friends on social media, I feel like I, I, I've been following their entire existence. That's probably pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs> is the, Did you ever worry about putting your children on social media? No, not really. Um, my wife and I just had a big talk about uh, there's, uh, you know, my, my older daughter's in kindergarten. There's a kid in her class already with a smartphone. And I don't think anything scares me shitless more than that. Like, uh, uh, the idea of a six year old having, uh, access to the internet, uh, themselves is scary. Uh, but as far as us, I mean, you know, I, I, I think people, um, it, it really is, you know, social media has a lot of flaws, but it is a good way to kind of keep up with people that, you know, you don't get to see, but, but, you know, a wedding every five to 10 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you you can see me, um, but the listener can't. And my face was as close to a cartoon as possible when you told me that a kindergartner has a smartphone. My jaw dropped and my eyes got much bigger. Uh, That's crazy. Do you? I mean, inevitably, your daughters will have cell phones or smartphones. When when are you going to do that? When are you going to give them that privilege? 
you know what? I think what I think what we what we really want to do is uh, you know, uh, cell phones are inevitable. Inevitably, as you know, before they should be even be ready, I think cell phones are going to be in the cards. But we're really trying to find a way to specifically keep them away from smartphones. Um, and uh, uh, my cousin has a really good uh, analogy. He says, you know, when you got picked on when you were a kid, it was at the lunchroom. The lunchroom last, you know, you're in the lunchroom for an hour, and now the lunchroom is 24 hours a day. You know, uh, with Snapchat and Facebook and all these things, you can, you know, you can constantly be, you know, bombarded by all these issues that we used to escape and go home. What I like about you, oh, this is going to come off as insulting, and I really hope it's not. Okay, so we had a shared experience in Chicago in terms of time. Uh, my wife is uh, from your class. She's one year younger than me, so I knew you for at least as long as I've known my wife, which is a very long time at this point. You went the opposite route of my wife and I, where we stayed in Chicago for a handful of more years, and then we moved to Washington, D.C., which is much more of a bubble than Chicago. And you sort of did the opposite. You went back home and you had a family at a relatively young age and you're like healthy and happy and you're successful. It's been weird following you guys on social media because it's pretty much the opposite of my day to day in Washington, DC. So do you feel a disconnect at all when you see your friends and all, all these other people that probably didn't have a wife and kids by the time, two kids by the time they were 30? Well, I think the, the further away you move from a metropolitan area, the earlier you get married. So I think what I – my and obviously life isn't planned. It's all an accident, right? But but my life plan ended up like a 1950s dad. Like, I mean, really, it's like you get married at 23 and then and then you have kids and then, and then you get a home. And then – you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's – but, you know, I got married – without knowing how weddings worked. Like I was that young and naive. Like I didn't know, I had never been to a rehearsal dinner and my, like my own was the first one. So I didn't know who gave speeches or what I should wear. You know what I mean? Yeah. uh, It it was, it's, it's just kind of been a kind of fake until you make it type, you know, type thing where it's, uh, um, you know, I guess what my life is considered weird now the way that that we did it. But um, you know, no one, my friends are just now getting married over the last couple of years from Chicago. But what's weird is my high school friends who I grew up with in Iowa got married a few years before that. I mean, they weren't at 23, but they were getting married at 25, 26, 27, you know? So, uh, it is the type of thing where it is a little weird to, uh, you know, be so far further ahead with how old my kids are. And my friends are now just talking about having kids. If it's okay with you, I don't really want to talk about Jimmy John's unless there's actually something really interesting there. You can. Is there anything interesting about Jimmy John's? I mean, I don't know if that's offensive or not. I apologize. No, there's a lot of interesting things about Jimmy John's. I just don't. Um, it was one of those things I kind of fell into when I was 25. Uh, I I uh, was uh, working at a, a college, a small liberal arts college in town, and going to grad school. And then an opportunity came up to be an operating partner in a couple stores, and then. Um, I've been doing that for eight years now. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's lots of, it's, it's a crazy world. Well, that's the day job, right? That's the like nine to five and the other jobs are like the passion projects. Is that how it works? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say more or less. I think, you know, basically what I, when I got started, I I thought to myself, Jimmy John's would be a good, um, way to learn how to run a bar because, you know, is, I think that's like every college guy's dream is to, 
to own a bar someday. Sure. Uh, so uh, it was those things where I thought, okay, this will give me a good skill set, you know, for kind of the whole picture that could probably carry over to a bar setting. And, and really it has. I mean, running a bar, I'd say, is much easier than running a Jimmy John's. Um, there's a, there's actually a lot less variables and a lot less headache. Your bar is very, very popular. Yeah, it's been great. You know, it's it's been very well received. And I think this concept is just kind of picking up all over the country. And I think, um, you know, people here were, have been especially receptive to it. What's the name of the bar? It's called Analog Arcade Bar. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, in, you know, in Chicago, there's the Emporiums and the headquarters and things, and the Logan Arcades, which is my favorite, so... So how did this come about? Uh, I just I'm, uh, I wrote a bunch of business plans, um, and this is one that I really liked. And, and, and what kind of caused it was I, uh, I I kept frequenting one bar that had a Street Fighter Two machine, um, along with the Golden Tees and the Buck Hunters, but it had one Street Fighter Two machine. I thought, man, if there was a place with fifty or sixty of these, that'd be really really fun. And so that's kind of how it started. And then I, I met a guy uh, in town who knew a lot about arcades how to maintenance them and what the value of them were and things like that. So we just kind of got together and uh, uh, went to a bank and they gave us money. So that's kind of how it went. (laughs) If you had any advice for potential bar owners, what is a trap that you guys fell into really early on that now looking back, you're like, oh, that was a total waste of time. It was a waste of money. I'll never do that again. Uh, I really don't think any kind of failure is, is a, a waste of time or any kind of mistake because then you learn it, you know? Um, I think probably the one thing that we've done right is that we have made sure to just set the expectation early um, as far as what our expectations are. I think the reason that bars are such a risky business is because they're, they're loose, you know, they're, they're a party when they're open and they're a party when they're closed Um, and kind of creating those very, um, you know, uh, clear expectations as far as employee employer relationship um, is important to you know maintain a long successful business. Sure, sure. We, now I've seen a lot of photos of like your daughters in the bar and stuff like that. Are you comfortable? Is like is it a kid friendly place or is it a strictly adults? It's not. They were able to come in um, you know during the build out process, but then once we opened, uh, they haven't been able to come in. And it was funny. They started crying when we opened and said, why would daddy make a bar where we can't come in? Why would daddy make a place where we can't come in, you know? So, but that's a question we get several times a week. And I think kind of the myopic viewpoint is, you know, you're, um, uh, why wouldn't you allow kids? You, that's more people and you can sell more things. And, 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 and my whole thing is, um, I don't want to, I don't want to hang out in a place where there's a six year old with cake all over their fingers, hogging a skee-ball machine. I want to be, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of backwards. We're limiting the number of people who are allowing in, but I think ultimately it's going to pay off for us. I think it's a wonderful idea. And uh, what's with the wrestling? You're into wrestling all of a sudden. Or not all of a sudden, but you just posted about, uh, you had some WrestleMania trading cards, and I'm very jealous of them. Oh, uh, no, I've always been a fan. Well, I'm, I've always been a fan of wrestling. And I think old school wrestling especially, I love the archetypes, archetypes especially of the heels. I've always been kind of a heel guy, uh, and I find the whole world fascinating, and uh, my friends have kept up with it, too, so it's something that we talk about pretty frequently, and uh, and it's just kind of fun, you know? So you have the WWE Network. I don't. I I steal it. (laughs) I have a buddy who has it, and I uh, I 
I'll go over to his place and we'll watch a little bit. But. Vince McMahon has enough money. You don't need to. But you're consistently, you're still watching it. I'm watching the product. Do you let your kids watch the product? No. No, they're not really into it. I mean, they're um, they're pretty girly. They like their princess stuff. So, um, you know, they have no real interest. But I don't keep up with it, with the current stuff as much as I'd like to, mainly because I'm working all the time, you know? Yeah. So, uh, it, but I like going back and uh, watching the old stuff. I was kind of a WCW guy, which I know is, is kind of blasphemy to a lot of people, but that was like 97, 98. The Wolfpack was like, that was the time where I really got into it. So whenever I can revisit that type of stuff, I will. You've been dealing with a lot of young people since you graduated college. You went from working, going to college to working at a college and then dealing with a lot of college-age students with Jimmy John's. Are you attracted to dealing with – that sounds weird. Are you, do you like working with younger people or are you aging out of it and that's why you opened a bar? You're like, I have a cutoff and it's 21 and over. Uh, no, no. I, I, think, you know, I think I'm just better um, – I, I, I think my, my, my joy in life and my skills are better with people than at a desk. Sure. Uh, and so I think that's really it. I think uh, you know, I really like to keep it interesting and um, – and college kids definitely keep it interesting, you know. Um, but it's also I, I like to kind of coach and mentor because I've obviously, you know, not to sound like an old man, but I've, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've and I've learned, you know. And I think if I can prevent people from making similar mistakes, then you know, why not help? You have a very strong man from the Midwest voice. Do you know that? I did not know that. You have yet? Yeah, you did or did not? I did not. No. Oh come on! You sound like a coach. You know that. That's like your tone. <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, I'm, I, I no. That's, I've never heard that. Yep. If someone was casting a, a play, a local play, and they needed like a junior high basketball coach, girls or boys, it'd be you. It would be me. All right. <laughs> I think if I never need a second career, I could do that. Well, I think that actually translates to the stand-up stuff because you started doing stand-up well out of college. Right. So I started doing stand-up when I was. Uh, 30. That's an, that's pretty old to start. Yeah, well, you know, it was one of those things where I thought, oh, this is something that I always want to do, but I'm, I'm too scared to do it. And uh, when I was 30, I stopped drinking, and then that freed up a lot of time. And I thought, okay, I need to be social, I need to be productive. Um, and so that's when I really just kind of dove head first into stand-up and, and fell in love with it. Why did you stop drinking at 30? Um, depression. Um, I've you know, suffered from depression my whole life. And, and it was one of those things where, uh, I realized I, I didn't like the person that I was when I was drinking. Did, um, did you make that call or was there some help with some friends in your family that saying like, Hey, maybe, uh, maybe not drinking. But it, it was a hundred percent my call. In fact, it, it caught a lot of people by surprise. I mean, people that I was very close to, you know, it, were, were taken aback by it. Like, what do you mean? You've never, I've never, you know, seen you out of control or anything like, like, like that. And that really wasn't the issue. It wasn't, the during it, you know, while I was drinking, it was the day after, and I'm thinking I I wouldn't do stupid things, but I would say I have I have a knack for saying the worst thing to somebody, and then thinking about it the next day, and then and then you know brewing on it for months. You know what I mean? Where it's like, why did I say that? You know what I mean? So uh, it was one of those things where I was like, I just I need to do this for myself. I just need to stop entirely. So that's been what like two years ago now? Two and a half years, yeah. And you have and you're still sober. And you opened a bar in that time. Yeah. And you decided to do stand-up, which is majority held in bars. Right. Well, I don't – that's the thing. I'm not – I don't um, 
uh, I don't feel the need to drink. That's I great. Think, yeah, and and I think being in bars uh, actually helps me not to drink because I get to see drunk people all the time, and I think I never want to be that way again. You know, I don't I, I don't want to be that way. You know. Yeah. So when you're dealing with your bartenders at your jobs, or you're dealing with the booker at a comedy club. Is it is it a weird disconnect? Are they like, what, huh? Are they taken aback at all? Yeah, some are. You know, I think some are better than others. Uh, you know, I definitely get the question a lot. Like, you know, people try to buy me shots uh, quite a bit at both, you know, when I was doing comedy and then at the bar. And, and, and the weirdest thing is people ask very direct questions when I don't know them that well, you know? Uh-huh. It's like, but the weirdest thing is the reaction because I'm, I'm very honest with most. If I know you somewhat well, I'll say like, oh, it's because I'm depressed. They get more uncomfortable than, with that than say I'm an alcoholic. You know what I mean? It's, it's it's a lot more acceptable if I'm like, no, I'm an alcoholic. That's why I don't drink. People are a lot. That's less of a taboo than if I say I don't drink because I'm depressed. Oh yeah, no one wants to hear about a sad man. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But ultimately, it's been great, and it, and I kind of you know once I was about a year, a year and a half in, I realized I don't think I have. I, I really don't feel the need to go back. I don't. I don't think it it really adds to my life in any positive way that. You know, I do miss a tangerine tonic from you know from now and then, but other than that, nothing. Are you still you're still doing stand up? I'm not. I'm uh, I haven't in about a year, uh, mainly because I, you know, I, I dove into this and um, I do miss it a lot. I'm I'm actually in the middle of judging a competition. There's a uh, the funniest person in Iowa contest at uh, Penguins in Cedar Rapids, uh, and I'm one of the judges on that. Um, so I, I, and I and I still go to shows. So I I do. You know, I met some of the best people through stand-up. They're some of the most real people you'll ever meet. Um, and uh, and so I, I, I do try to keep it up with, up with it. And, you know, I've thought about going back, but I don't have the brain space to, to do it right now, you know? So are, are you happier in general than you were two and a half years ago? Oh, absolutely. There wasn't one specific moment then. It was just like, I'm 30, enough is enough. It's been a while. I got to get less sad. Um, yeah, I mean... Well, it, there was it, there was there was one thing um, that uh, I had um, a friend's mom pass away um, uh, from suicide, and um, it was one of those things that really shook me. And I thought, okay, I could see myself going down this path, you know. And and I thought, what can I do to kind of prevent myself from from progressing towards that? And it, and it was one of those things where, you know, a, a quote I heard a few years ago was, you know, suicide doesn't make the pain go away. It spreads it around to everyone you've ever loved. And, and being able to see that firsthand really kind of shook me. And I thought, yeah, I don't really want to do that to anybody else. So when your friends and family hear this episode, are they going to be taken aback or are they going to be like, yep, that's just Dan being Dan. I think I'll, the people who really know me just think it's Dan being Dan. Cause I think I, I, I really don't have a lot of, and I think stand up helped with that. I really don't have a, a whole lot of social qualms about it. I think, um, you know, if it makes you uncomfortable, that's kind of on you and, and it's not on me. And I think as I grew older, I realized, you know, I, I was afraid of what people would think of me in all, in all capacities, you know, as far as career and how I dressed and how I acted and who I'm out with and all those things. And then I started to realize that it's just kind of a litmus test, you know, like it's, it's a powerful tool to know who, like, like, you know, who, who is there for you and who is there because you represent something or, you know, whatever. So um, no, I think most people are just going to say, oh yeah, I've heard this before. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen a therapist? 
I don't see therapists. I see a psychiatrist every month, uh, but he more or less just prescribes me drugs. Um, and uh, I've never really felt the need to go to a therapist because I don't think it's um, that I have problems that I need. To, like, I don't think I have external. I think that's why, you know, depression is so confusing is because I don't have external problems that I can point to and say, this is why I feel sad. It's more like, oh, no, this is this is genetic. This is something that's just it's it's something that's the way it is. And, and, and it's something that I just have to deal with accordingly. So are you on anything now? Um, I'm actually, I've, I've run through pretty much every, uh, antidepressant with varying levels of success, but not, not enough to really, um, keep me going. Uh, the, the one thing that I'm on that really helps me quite a bit is Adderall. So Adderall has actually made me happier than any antidepressant has. It's a drug meant, you know, basically for people with ADD. Do you have ADD? I don't know what I have. I basically, I believe I do, but... I told my uh, I told my psychiatrist that I was having a tough time focusing at work. I just kind of felt tired and cloudy all the time, and uh, he prescribed me Adderall, and it's been a complete light. It's been a game changer for me. Is your wife on any medication? She's not. No. Okay. Um, how was she? I mean, you've known her seemingly and in like feeling forever as an adult. You've known her since you've always been an adult. Right. So what, I mean, what's crazy is that you know I'm about to th- turn 33. She's 32. And I started dating her when she was, we were 15. So she, I was 16, she was 15. So she, she's been with me for half of her life, over half of her life, which is kind of crazy to think about. So when you first saw uh, a psychologist, was she happy, indifferent, uh, sad about it? What was her reaction? No, she's just ultimately, she's always been very supportive. And, uh, and, and I really hit a tough point in college. I mean, college was really, high school was tough, but my sophomore, junior years of college, I kind of went off the deep end a little bit, kind of stayed in my dorm and played a lot of solitaire and uh, drank a lot of uh, Jaeger, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, it was one of those things where I just really, um, she's always been supportive and and uh, she's one of the most socially aware people and she has a lot of emotional intelligence. And so she's always, she's never, she's never made me feel anything but totally comfortable with it. And I think that's what makes it a whole lot easier. Do your children take more after you or your wife? One, uh, my older daughter is more like Megan. My, my younger daughter is more like me. So do you worry about passing those traits on to either of them? Or is it one of those things where like, you know what? They're going to get what they're going to get. There's nothing I could do about it. No, I do. I mean, and I think the one who is more like me, I see a lot good and bad, you know, um, in me. And, uh, you know, she's just kind of this um, free spirit and she's very extroverted um, but you know, she's also very insecure and, and so we're trying to do everything we can to kind of build her up, how we can get her into things that she, she can find herself in, you know, um, our older daughter is just more very type A perfectionist organized. And, uh, that's not me definitely. So, um, <laughs> so I question if she's mine, you know, what could you be doing that would make you happier, be it career, uh, extracurricular, family, anything? Because it seems like you're on the right path. You're doing things that you already enjoy. You're challenged every day. You're, for all intents and purposes, clean. You're taking care of yourself. What could you be doing to make it better? I think the thing I could do to make it better is uh, take more breaks. Um, maybe I... In the, in the last, since I started Jimmy John's in the last eight years, I've taken um, 
27 actual out of town days off where it wasn't for a wedding or like a like an obligation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I usually average about um, three. I, I feel uncomfortable leaving for more than three or four days at a time, and I think I need to get out of that. Like I think I, I, I'm kind of hitting that point where it's like, okay, I pushed it so hard to get to this point. I'm really glad that you were down to talk about all this stuff because I thought we were just going to talk about fun things like stand up and arcades. Do you remember how we met? Uh, through my, I'm assuming I was working at your dorm. Okay, so you don't remember the story? Uh, I mean, it's been 15 years, so no, I don't remember the story. <laughs> it's a great story. So I have a history of sleepwalking. Yes, I know that. And so when I was at Corcoran, which is the dorm at DePaul, and my roommate hadn't moved in yet, I fell asleep and I woke up in the stairwell with the fire alarms going out. And I was only wearing boxer shorts, and I was and I, I had sleepwalked. I had sleepwalked and set off the alarm, and then locked myself out of my room outside of the dorm. And I had to walk all the way back through the lobby. It's like three in the morning, and the lobby's full of, of kids because they're away from their parents for the first time in their life. And you were working the door, and I didn't have an ID, and I didn't have a shirt on, and I didn't have pants on, and I tried to explain to you half asleep, horrified, like completely mortified, like. Hey guy, I don't know. Please make an exception and let me into my room. And you just looked at me with this scowl, and you're just like, "Fine, like it's going to be a long year." You know what I mean? Just like an eye roll, like dumb college freshman. You know what I mean? Like, and so that was my first introduction to you. So I thought that's a, that's a story I could carry with me forever. I really wish it was a more positive interaction. I apologize. <laughs> it was my fault. I mean, I just, you know, and so I, I was horrified the next day because obviously people were talking about it. So instead of trying to play it off as anything other than it was. I went out and told everybody about it and took the power away from it. You know what I mean? I just went around to everybody like, you won't believe what I did last night. And that really kind of sold everything in, you know? Here's the thing about that. Um, I, I had that job for I've been probably 18 months, and um, you, you were maybe the only sleepwalker we ever had. And I didn't know that, obviously, I didn't. I mean, I believed you to a point. I dealt with so many just random 18-year-old kids that were high or drunk that I just hated all of them. And I, <laughs> And I didn't do anything. I didn't drink or get high. So I just really hated all of you guys. And then you got lumped into this category, which for all intents and purposes makes a lot of sense. But you actually were suffering from an illness. And that's, there's no, I'm not excusing my behavior. I'm just saying. No, no, no. no I mean, it was, it, 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 yeah, it was, it was your, and you were fine. You didn't, you know, bust my chops about it or anything. You were great. But uh, uh, I just thought it was funny that. I never thought in a million years that we would be talking 15 years after the fact. You know, I thought, like, you're a random guy. <laughs> I, like, we're never going to cross paths again. You, know, you are you are one of the easiest to get along with men I ever met in college and definitely that ever interacted with in the music industry in any way. And definitely when it comes to stand-up, one of the least uh, neurotic, uh, mean, judgmental people. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. If you would like more information about Analog, the arcade bar in the Quad Cities, go to analogarcadebar.com. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, my name is Brandon Weatherby. I'm at sign YMTE. That stands for You, Me, Them, Everybody. That's the name of my other show. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, we're at Ubi Est Mia Pod, and we're also on Facebook. Just put in Ubi Est Mia in that little search function, and you will find us. Our art is by Dmitry Samarov, and both of our theme songs are by Daniel Knox. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful night.
that you've been smooth. 